Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 33, Dreams of a New Empire. First, as always, thanks to our new Patreon supporters. This month, we've got AIO, Mike Ellis, Rostislav Rykov, and Mark Callahan. So huge thanks to all of you for supporting us. Uh, the podcast is already getting closer to the point where I'm going to try to see if I can get someone to do a real website reboot because the website's been a bit neglected. I've been trying to kind of keep up with it, but there's a lot of work I can do there. So look forward to that. So, episode 32 ended with 1147. At that moment, the shambling remnants of the German Crusader army met the still fresh French forces in Anatolia. Together, they seemed poised to move to Jerusalem and fulfill their mission to reinforce the Crusader states after the fall of the county of Edessa to Islamic forces. Byzantine Emperor Manuel Komnenos couldn't offer any assistance because the Normans, under Roger II, had just invaded the Balkans for a third time. So, while the events of the Second Crusade and the Third Norman Invasion happened simultaneously, we'll start with the Normans before returning to the Near East. As with previous invasions, this one began with the Greek islands of the Ionian Sea, Roger's generals in charge of the invasion, George of Antioch, began with Corfu. The combination of well-priced bribes and high Byzantine taxes led the people to Corfu to actually just welcome the Normans. So, that was an easy conquest. The Normans left a garrison and quickly moved on. But instead of invading the mainland and trying to take Dyrrhachium or to cross Greece by foot, which you'll recall led to the defeats and the supply problems in the last invasion, this time the Normans decided to just go by sea. So their ships carried them to Athens, which they sacked. Then the entire Aegean coast and many islands, uh, including kidnapping, so they raided all the Aegean coasts and islands and then kidnapped Jewish workers to the silk industry and returned them to Sicily, which actually began the nascent silk industry there. But Manuel wasn't taking all these attacks lying down. He brought his Venetian allies into the mix and managed to defeat the Norman fleet with them. But not before they had still spent about two years sacking and pillaging, attacking other cities like Corinth all throughout Greece. All of this was despite the fact that the Byzantines were also handling yet another attack by the Cumans in the Balkans in 1148. But still, by 1149, Byzantine forces had retaken Corfu and fought back the Cumans. In response, George and his fleet attempted to attack Constantinople himself. But the Normans were prevented from landing and had to settle for making a kind of grand gesture by firing arrows at the imperial palace. But really, it was just that, a gesture. At that point, things with the Normans 
quieted down until Roger's death in 1154. Okay, so now we're going back in time again to 1147, where we left off with the Second Crusade. <clears throat> the German and French forces had united and moved along the Mediterranean coast, arriving in Ephesus at the end of the year. Here, the German king Conrad fell ill and was forced to return to Constantinople. The French King Louis was now fully in charge of the Crusader army. Despite hearing rumors of a planned Turkish attack, he quickly got his army back on the road to Jerusalem. Just outside the city, and on Christmas Eve no less, the Turks attacked. We have few details, but the Crusaders seem to have won this engagement. And within days, the Turks attacked again as the Crusaders attempted to cross a river in the treacherous Meander Valley. Once again, the Crusaders were victorious, using their heavy cavalry to push back the more lightly armored Turkish, for Turkish forces. No doubt feeling con confident, they continued on their way through Anatolia. But as should be clear, the Turks had yet to throw their full weight at the Crusaders. The battles of Ephesus and the Meander Valley were both glorified hit-and-run attacks. They made their way towards the city of Laodicea and the mountain pass which would bring them towards southern Anatolia. They reached that spot on the day of the Epiphany, an important Christian holiday, January 6th. Now as I mentioned, the now largely French, French forces were feeling pretty confident following their two recent victories. As such, they weren't too concerned with their forward troops getting a bit far ahead of the main army. And the Turks took full advantage of this, using the terrain to surprise them from the high ground. The French troops retreated back into a gorge which pressed them between steep cliffs and rock walls. Thousands died, and King Louis himself barely escaped to reach Atalea, modern Antalya, on the Mediterranean 14 days later, fending off harassing attacks the entire way. Louis was by now completely over the idea of traveling to the Holy Land via a land route, and in any case, the Seljuk Turks had burned crops ahead of him to prevent what forces remained from living off the land. So Louis simply waited for ships to ferry his force by sea. Most ships, however, just never showed up. So Louis and his entourage went on their own and left the rest of the army to go overland themselves. The Seljuks and disease ensured that very few of them would ever make it. By the time Louis arrived in Antioch, the military aspect of the crusade had more or less been abandoned. Christian forces were ex expected military aid and were shocked when Louis declined to participate in an expedition to attack Aleppo, preferring to continue to Jerusalem as a simple pilgrim. That's basically what this whole thing had become now, just a pilgrimage for King Louis. But some military forces did finally arrive in Jerusalem in April of 1148. Conrad had also recovered and came himself. Now, this may not have been the massive force that uh, the Christians were wanted, but Muslim leaders of nearby states still all knew that this meant war was coming. The region of Damascus convinced all of his neighbors to stop fighting each other and to focus on this new Christian threat. Still, the Christians in Jerusalem weren't that decisive, at least not as much as they'd hoped. As usual, they all had their differences to reconcile. 
So they called the Council of Acre in June of that year to decide where they should attack. They ultimately decided that Damascus would be their target and not the recapture of Edessa, which was the original point of the whole crusade. Now, a month later in July of 1148, 50,000 soldiers set off for the ancient city to kind of make a full-scale attack on Damascus. Arriving at the outskirts, the crusaders were no doubt relieved to find ample orchards around that city ready to provide them with food. Unfortunately, towers and walls in the vicinity also allowed Muslim defenders to keep up a constant harassing attack, never giving the invaders a moment's peace. Next came a river that was controlled by the enemy, but a valiant attack by Conrad and some dismounted knights won the day and the crusaders managed to take the river and move even closer to Damascus. Now, the crusaders took the wood from those orchards and set to making siege equipment to take the city. But, now prepare to be shocked here, are you prepared? Good, it's always smart to be prepared. Nothing shocking, the crusaders couldn't agree on what to do. They argued about who would get to take the city, who would get to own it once they took it, all the usual crap that they always seem to argue about. So, skipping over a bunch of convoluted politics, four days from the beginning of the attack, the crusaders gave up and went home. The attack was a complete waste of time and resources, leading to a bunch of spectacle and nothing of substance. Now, every side felt like it had been betrayed by the other, and the Second Crusade had truly devolved into a big pile of nothing. Conrad just up and went back to Constantinople. After all, he still had an alliance with Emperor Emmanuel to maintain. King Louis went back to Jerusalem for long enough to watch his marriage fall apart, Again, you really have to watch that 1967 film Lion in Winter, which picks up a few decades after this, but as Eleanor, the wife he's arguing with, as a main character, and talks a lot about these events, so just check out that movie, it's awesome. Anyways, <clears throat> Manuel was still very enthusiastic about his alliance with Conrad, and probably less concerned about the failure of the crusade. But unfortunately for him, Conrad died in 1152, and his successor, Frederick Barbarossa, wasn't interested in a deal with the Byzantines. So just like that, a key element of Manuel's anti-Norman foreign policy was done with. He could no longer rely on the Holy Roman Empire up in Germany to have his back if the Normans invaded the Balkans yet again. Unsurprisingly, the Balkans themselves also hadn't been entirely quiet for these past few years. In 1149, a Serbian rebellion came seemingly out of nowhere from the Byzantine perspective. In fact, Roger II of Sicily had encouraged it from behind the scenes. But in spite of the Byzantines being distracted by the Second Crusade, Manuel still managed to crush the rebellion and made a group of Serbs which had rebelled into his vassals. Oh, but it doesn't end there. The Hungarians were also on the menu. They were concerned about, well, a threat. Uh, they, they were concerned about... Manuel, and so he led a series of invasions deep into Hungarian territory, stealing an immense amount of treasure, and ultimately leading to a relatively inconclusive peace in 1153. But still, the Byzantines definitely came out on top here. So Manuel's kind of running around the Balkans and shoring up all of the questionable elements at his borders, the Serbs and the Hungarians. So for now, things quiet down for a few, few years. <clears throat> that is until 1156, 
when the new leader of Antioch decides that Manuel had reneged on an agreement to pay him a large quantity of money, and to get his revenge, this man, Reynold, decides to attack Byzantine Cyprus. He launched an invasion and took Manuel's nephew, the governor, as hostage. The island was brutally stripped of its wealth, its people were attacked and tortured, it was a horrendous campaign. Contemporary chroniclers were horrified by the actions of this man. Reynold also made it crystal clear to Manuel that he was really, really not happy. I mean, he had just done all these terrible things in Cyprus. In retaliation, Manuel attacked Armenian Cilicia and took the province. It helped that it had helped Antioch in the invasion. But as you can imagine, Manuel still wasn't done. He hadn't got his full revenge. So he took an army and headed straight for Antioch. Reynold, unfortunately, was starting to realize that he wasn't actually, let's say, ready to meet this challenge head on. So like anyone who's bit off more than you can chew, he just asked for help. Unfortunately for him, King Baldwin III of Jerusalem might have been a good candidate for help, but he hadn't approved of the invasion of Cyprus to begin with and was hardly going to back up Reynold now. Other potential allies all also said no. Reynold was alone. He quickly realized that he didn't stand a chance and just surrendered. Seriously, what a loser. I mean, seriously. Talk about overplaying your hand. He, you know, raises this big stink, does all this stuff in Cyprus, and then just immediately is forced to give up. So, to beg forgiveness, Reynold appears before Manuel dressed in a sack with a rope around his neck and just begs him. Pretty sad stuff. Considering it meant annexing a city as powerful as Antioch, Manuel agreed to the surrender and the Byzantine Empire expanded farther south. It was now 1159 and Manuel, in spite of all the damage that had been done in Cyprus, was actually riding high. High enough that he felt like going on a little crusade of his own. So he gathered an army and headed south to attack the Islamic State based in Edessa, which was the goal of the Second Crusade, if you'll recall. But that campaign didn't really go anywhere, Emmanuel abandoned it after securing the release of 6,000 Christian prisoners of war, which was still not too bad. On the way back to Constantinople, the Byzantines were suddenly attacked by the Turks, but the ambush was turned around and the Byzantines won a crushing victory. So now we're going to go back in time slightly and look to Italy. Now, we left off here when Roger II died in 1154. Well, now his son William I is in charge, and he's got problems to deal with with rebellious nobles who have been shut out of the circles of power in William's court. All they needed was a bit of encouragement to, well, take things into their own hands. Luckily for them, in no time at all, William had made enemies of Pope Adrian IV, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, and of course, Manuel in Constantinople. So... With the blessings of this pretty serious trifecta of European power players, the invasions and rebellions began within a year of William taking power in Sicily and southern Italy. So in 1155, Manuel landed ships, soldiers, and two of his best generals in southern Italy to make himself kind of felt there. Frederick also invaded from the north, but his expedition kind of went nowhere fast and he had to retreat back across the Alps. Still, the combination of local power players all being in favor of Manuel's invasion and his crack force led to a string of impressive victories. As he retook 
city after city in southern Italy, Manuel's mind began entertaining ideas of recreating the Roman Empire, reconquering and reuniting the Mediterranean world. And why not? Here he was, attacking the Norman king who dominated southern Italy in Sicily, with the Pope himself as an ally. It seemed like the perfect moment. So, Manuel returned to that distant dream of so many emperors and popes, reuniting the Western and Eastern Christian churches. So, negotiations began in earnest with Pope Adrian, but just at this moment, the situation on the ground was shifting. William's forces were getting their act together and mounting serious counterattacks. The unity between the Byzantines and local nobles, which had brought so much success up to that point, began to fracture. Mercenaries demanded pay increases and deserted when they weren't given, and negotiations with the Pope over church reunification faltered. The writing was on the wall. In 1156, William forced Pope Adrian to sign a treaty recognizing him as king. Fighting continued with the Byzantines, bringing in reinforcements, for, and this lasted about two years, but by 1158, the Byzantines were forced to give up and leave Italy. Once again, the Normans and Byzantines proved that neither was really capable of solidly defeating the other, leading to the turn of the status quo antebellum between these implacable foes yet again. The same year the Byzantines left Italy, they returned to Anatolia to go on the offensive against the Seljuks and the Sultanate of Rum. The four-year campaign went well, so by 1162, Manuel had a favorable treaty and was ready to turn around and show the Hungarians some love again. That invasion began in 1163. The campaign continued for years until the summer of 1167, because that's when the two armies, evenly matched with around 15,000 soldiers each, met in Sirmium on the Savo River, about 74 kilometers from Belgrade. The result was a complete Byzantine victory, crushing the Hungarians and leading to a peace deal which recognized Byzantine control of the region around the Sava River, Bosnia, and the Dalmatian coast. Now, with the Serbs and the Hungarians both cowed, essentially the entire Balkan Adriatic coast was firmly under Byzantine control, and they had no other significant rivals in the Balkans. Around this time, in an effort to forge a better relationship with the Hungarian king Stephen, that king sent his younger brother and his heir Bela to Constantinople to be educated in the court of Manuel. This gave the Byzantine emperor an excellent idea. By marrying his daughter Maria with Bela, the boy would essentially become the future king of Hungary and the Byzantine Empire, effectively uniting the two in a southeastern European superstate. But biology had its own plans. In 1169, Manuel had a son, and just like that, Bela lost his status as the heir apparent. Then, in 1172, when Stephen died, Bela returned to Hungary to rule. While plans to reunite the realms had failed, a serious bond had been forged between the two rulers. As a result, for the rest of Manuel's reigns, uh, relations between Hungary and Byzantium were excellent, in spite of the fact that Manuel had just annexed a significant amount of Hungarian territory. In other diplomatic news, Manuel was also trying to patch things up with the Kingdom of Jerusalem leading to a marriage alliance in 1167. Now that they were firmly on the same side, Constantinople and Jerusalem put together a plan to take that immense prize at their doorstep. Not Syria or Mesopotamia, but Egypt. The plan was to conquer it together and give the Byzantines the coast while the kingdom of Jerusalem got the interior. 
It seemed like Manuel's dreams of a new Roman Empire weren't completely dead after all. If this joint attack were successful, well, let's just say this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. The joint invasion began in 1169 with a joint siege of the Egyptian coastal city of Damietta. But, well, prepare for another serious anticlimax here, a lack of cooperation between Christian forces led to the siege falling into shambles pretty quickly and everyone going home within a year. This development brought to you by the Middle East, where good ideas go to die. Still, Manuel had gotten himself into a pretty nice geopolitical situation. Sure, his latest attempts to expand his empire by taking southern Italy, annexing Hungary, invading Egypt had all failed, but his empire was still riding strong. That was the situation when in, when in 1174, the Seljuks decided to uh, fail to hold up their end of the peace treaty that they had signed when the last war ended in 1162. <clears throat> Manuel was mad as hell about this. And so, in revenge, he decided to set out to take the Seljuk capital of Konya once and for all. This central Anatolian fortress was formidable and it resisted all attacks from Byzantines and Crusaders alike. But Manuel had 35,000 soldiers and a chip on his shoulder, and he was feeling ready for anything. Clearly, the Seljuks could feel that, well, that the Byzantines were serious this time, because they met his army and offered extremely generous peace terms. But Manuel turned them down. He continued his advance, feeling confident. He was passing through a mountain pass, about 100 kilometers from Konya, when the Seljuks suddenly descended from the hills and mountains around them, and to attack the long, drawn-out Byzantine forces. The narrow pass rendered Byzantine numerical superiority useless as the Turks trapped and destroyed one section after another, including the vital siege weapons, which were essential to have any hope of taking Konya. So, despite the fact that the Byzantines still had an army after this attack, they had no way to take the city and were forced to retreat and suffer harassing attacks all the way home. One historian, William of Tyre, claimed that Manuel was just never the same after this defeat. Still, it was more of a propaganda victory for the Seljuks, and fighting continued between the two sides until 1180, with the Byzantines securing several victories. But still, the Turks would remain a real thorn in the side of the Byzantines for years to come. Now, at the same time Manuel was fighting deep in Anatolia, Frederick Barbarossa was invading northern Italy in an attempt to extend his empire's position there. Manuel may have wanted an alliance with the Germans, but that dream had died with Frederick's successor Conrad, and now Manuel had no desire to see Frederick expand into Italy. So he opposed the invasion, which was ultimately unsuccessful. In 1177, feeling he had recovered from his defeat to the Seljuks, Manuel attempted another invasion of Egypt. But this time, the Kingdom of Jerusalem had no interest in helping. So the fleet returned home without really mounting an invasion at all. Ultimately, Manuel and his empire were just running out of steam. His major plans for expansion and defeat of his long-standing enemies were all going nowhere. He was approaching 60, and by this point, he had ruled the empire for three and a half decades. But he still dreamed big. In 1180, his son Alexius II accepted a marriage proposal from the daughter of the King of France, setting the stage for what could be a significant alliance. But it was at this moment that Manuel finally died. His son was an infant, and so a regency took over. True, Manuel was undoubtedly a strong emperor, a fighter through and through. 
But at this crucial moment of his death, the empire was ruled by a regency. The kingdom of Jerusalem wasn't feeling friendly. The Seljuks were ready to go on the offensive. Good relations with the Hungarians couldn't be guaranteed now that the personal link with Manuel was gone. Venice was hostile over Manuel's decision to basically make them an enemy and arrest all their citizens some years earlier. And the Normans were feeling confident and belligerent over in Italy. Manuel's dreams of a new Roman Empire were thoroughly dead, and enemies everywhere were licking their chops, staring at the Byzantine state. In other words, the Byzantines were looking just like the Bulgarians had so many times. A powerful and belligerent emperor had died, and in the blink of an eye, the empire went from looking very powerful and ready for anything to extremely vulnerable. The question was, what was going to happen now? Enemies were everywhere, including within. Next time, we'll see just what the Bulgarians plan to do about this. This episode was written by me, Eric Halsey, and produced by Lance Nelson, with research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes, and you can listen to us on SoundCloud. Lastly, if you'd like to hear about Bulgaria today, check out the Bulgarian Now podcast created by Lance Nelson. You can hear me give stuff like an audio tour of Sofia and talk about living in the city today. In the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>